Hi and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young adults living in Montreal who meet together to talk about what it means to be a Christian. The podcast today is a sermon from our series on the basic beliefs of Christianity. Hope you enjoy. So growing up, I went to a fairly strict school, particularly by North American standards. It was very, very regimented, very, very strict. And so it was the best experience I've had when it comes to sort of the archetypal authority figure type of structure. We had a headmaster who was a person who was you, you got that sense about him that he was a distant, out-of-reach kind of figure. He was absolutely an authoritarian figure. When you saw him passing in the hall, man, you snapped to attention. You made sure that you didn't, like, screw around when he was nearby. Like, you had to give him, like, like literally, you would, like, stand up straight and you'd have to, like, tip your hat to him as he came past. You wouldn't greet him unless he greeted you. Well, you'd have to greet him, good morning, sir, but he would like often say nothing to you in return. He would just kind of keep super serious guy. He would never come willy-nilly to do anything. If he showed up, it was for a reason. It was often for a serious reason. Every time you would regularly see him, we would always have a, once a week a school assembly where the whole school would come together. He would come, give announcements, and then he would be gone again. And that was it. Like you'd see him in the hallways, you would see him uh, at, at assemblies, and that was it. And so you got the sense of, uh, like, he's not to be trifled with. He's a super serious figure. And I remember in my second to last year of school, uh, what we had to do in order to, to even be able to graduate into the last year of high school in my particular school was you had to go on this, this course, this training, like, it was about five days long, four or five days long, something like that. You had to go, uh, and it was basically torture. Like, they would run drills on you. They would give you three hours of sleep a night. They would let you, like, get to sleep outside in the mud. It was just awful. This is awful experience for a 16-year-old kid. And you had to do it. And so we were on this thing, and he shows up. And no one expects him to come. And so when he's there, it just changes the mood entirely. He showed up at night. We were gathered together in this sort of hut hall thing that was there. And all of a sudden, he comes in the room. And air, like the, the whole room just hushed. Everyone knew, like, something's about to happen. Like, we don't know what, but this is not good. And he gets up and he says, um, all of you uh, are disappointing me. You're not putting in the effort you need to on this camp. So we've contacted your parents. We've informed them that you'll be spending an extra two nights here. So you thought it was going to be four nights long. It's going to be six nights long. Uh, you better do better. And he walks off. And everyone's just like, what just happened? You know, like you have your mind set around this idea of like, what it's going to be, and then all of a sudden it just comes shattering in and breaking your conception of everything, and he, then he was gone. Cut a long story short, it turns out it was a total lie. Like, he, had, he didn't do that at all. He was just playing mind games with us, and it was all part of the torture that they were putting us through. But it was still uh, this sort of great moment in my life of remembering, like, when two things happen. Number one, when you see someone come into a room and you think like, this is significant, something's about to happen right now, and you know, I need to pay attention. This is important. And the second thing is like, 
someone just completely breaking your world apart in just a few words, just totally breaking your world apart. And I wanted to set, tell that story to set the tone about what we're discussing tonight, because we've spent the last three sermons establishing the identity of Christ, looking at who is he, and looking at the evidence we have to point to the conclusion that he is an utterly unique figure. Like no one has been, has ever existed like Christ. No one ever will again. He is utterly unique and with that uniqueness, totally pivotal. The most important person who has ever existed. The most uh, important historical figure that, that could ever exist. And so we've been establishing this and then it leads us to the question, all right, if he is this person, if he is this being, he is God incarnate, God come among us, why is he here? In the same way the headmaster walks into this crowd, what's going on? Why is he here? You know, why has he come at all? What does this all mean? And that's the question that we're going to be unpacking over the next few weeks. And now it's going to have to be a slow progressive unpacking because these are huge questions absolutely enormous. And so the fullness of the answer of why is Jesus, why did he come, what did he come to accomplish, is going to be unpacked over weeks. But right now, what we need to focus on is basically the beginning of the story. And we want to focus on the idea that primarily Christ came to rescue us, to save us. Now that's abundantly clear when you begin to read the New Testament and you begin to read the Old Testament establishing what the role of this Messiah figure would be. He was coming to be a savior, coming to be someone who would rescue us. And this is something that he self-describes himself. That's redundant, sorry. He describes himself this way. He says, I am a doctor, savior, light, shepherd. He says all these kinds of things. He is here to help us, to save us. And then the next obvious question is, save us from what? Like, help us with what? What is he here to save us from? And then the answer is, well, what the Bible would call sin. What the Bible calls sin is something that we can all relate to because we all relate to the sense of brokenness that's within us. Not only within us, but in the world around us. We look at a world around us that bears uh, the, the signature of brokenness from the very smallest institutions to the greatest, from individual, individuals and you know, small nuclear families all the way to nations. There is a brokenness that everything and everyone carries, and it's down to our core. And so we're looking at sin today, explaining what we can see the evidence of all around us and pointing to not only what it is, but then establishing ourselves into what would the remedy for this be? Like, how do we get us? How do we get out of this hole that we're in? And how does the work of Christ begin to apply to this area of our life and go about saving us? And so, if you were reading the chapter this week, uh, the quote I loved within it was where John Stott begins to explain how much of society is marked by sin, and he says in the book. Much that we take for granted in a civilized society is actually based upon the assumption of human sin. Nearly all legislation has grown up because we simply cannot be trusted to settle our disputes with justice and without self-interest. A promise is not enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We need a lock. The payment of fares is not enough. Tickets have to be issued, inspected, and collected. Law and order is not enough. We need police to enforce them. All of this is due to our sin. 
We cannot trust one another. We need protection against one another. It is a terrible indication of what human nature is really like. A great thought experiment is to think about how, if all of a sudden everyone tomorrow stopped sinning. Hallelujah, great day. But what would change about our world? You think about all the institutions that would all of a sudden have no need to exist anymore. He points to a couple. Police force and all legislative, uh, you know, legal system would cease to exist. Uh, the armies would cease to exist. Politicians, by and large, would cease to exist. Um, all of these different things. And then, you know, hospitals would gradually empty over time, considering the most of the reasons that we go to hospitals because we're addicted to things. All of these kind of things would start to slowly fade away. Businesses that are built upon feeding sinful practices and marketing companies and, and all kinds of uh, terrible farming practices that just rape and ruin the environment. All of these kind of things would just slowly disintegrate and fall apart and we would be left with a culture that looks so radically different because so much of our culture is based upon either the management of sin or the feeding of sin in order to get some kind of good response out of it. And so we look at this problem that is clearly evident all around of us and there's a huge movement today to try to explain it in certain terms so we can go about tackling it. And so there's big movements to try to say, well, you know, the reason that we do these things and our selfishness, it comes out of bad societies. You know, people are bad because they're born into bad societies. And these bad societies give them bad worldviews and begin to reward bad behavior and so they become bad. Other people say, well, it's because of the cycle of poverty. People born into poverty need to kind of fight to survive, and so they do these bad things in order to do so. Or trauma, you know, having you know, people hurt you as, a, as an infant or any, I guess any time throughout your life uh, leaves a mark upon you and it causes you to hurt people in response. And certainly none of these answers are completely wrong. They're, they're not. I mean, all of them have something very valid to say. But what we've also found is that they are absolutely not enough to fully explain it. Well, so bad societies are created by us. Like, they don't come out of nowhere. It's people who create society. So, you know, you just kind of keep moving the answer backwards. You haven't found an answer there. Uh, poverty is, well, sure, people are poor, but why is it that poverty brings us out of us? Like, why do we react this way to poverty and not another way to poverty? Why, is this, why do we look at people in poverty and why are we not drawn towards helping them? Why instead do we push away from them? Why does trauma cause us to do that? And it certainly doesn't have to. Sometimes trauma can bring the best out of us. I mean, you see these different things that it doesn't fully answer the question to, why are we selfish? Why are we so often willfully ignorant? Why are we full of pride and lust and greed? Why? What is it about us? And the Bible looks at the answer as well and says this is a spiritual condition that we carry, this brokenness that we carry. And Christ steps into this world to kill the sin within our hearts. I mean, that's his rescue plan. His, his rescue plan is to kill the power of sin that it has over us. And, and honestly, I'm not going to be able to go into depth into it tonight, but sin is really seen as a power in the Bible. It's not something that we simply carry, but something that has power over us. It, it pushes us, it dominates us, it enslaves us as well. And so Christ comes to deal with these issues and, and the sin within our hearts. But in order for him to do that, there's an additional problem that is we face. And it's built into the nature of sin itself in that sin is somewhat self-deceptive. We cannot see the true problem in front of us 
you know, we can't really see how sinful we are because of how sinful we are. Sad kind of catch-22 situation where our sin blinds us to our sin. Uh, Malcolm Mutteridge says this, the depravity of man, and that's speaking about sin, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. See, people like to think about sin as a problem until you start looking at their lives, their sin. And now all of a sudden it's not a, much of a big problem as it was before. You know, it's, good, it's very easy and, and your sin always appears much smaller to you and other people's sin always appears much bigger to you because of the nature of sin. And so the problem that creates is that when the Bible speaks to the remedy to sin, we're not ready for it. Because we, we, we're not ready to face the reality and agree to the reality in the terms that the Bible sets. And so almost like if you went to the doctor and you went to the doctor because you have like a cramp in your leg and it's kind of really sore and, and causing you a lot of issues. And so you go to the doctor and you say, you know, I have these like reoccurring leg cramps. It's like every now and then this really grips my leg and it's really painful. The doctor does some tests, goes out to the room, comes back with the results. He says, look, we need to amputate your leg. You'd be like, what? Like, that's crazy. Like, what are you talking about, amputate my leg? Like, that's an insane overreaction to the problem at hand. It's just leg cramps. What are you talking about? And that's what we're looking for when it comes to religion, by and large, as people. We're not looking for some drastic change. We're not looking to have some heart transplant type of situation. When we come to God, we're looking for just, just a little something. Just a little religion to help me get through the day. Just a little bit of the spirit to help keep me, you know, keep my, uh, myself in check, to keep you know, myself feeling comforted when I need comfort. That's what we want. We want enough morality to feel good about ourselves. We want enough of God to feel like we're not alone. But when Christ comes, he says, you need an entire overhaul. You, you need a heart transplant. You need an amputation. And we freak out. We freak out. And we use all kinds of things to try to get around that truth. So the, the chapter of the book, the Basic Christianity book, kind of breaks down the Bible's teaching on sin. And the first thing we learn is that sin is universal. Everyone carries sin. And it not only says, look, everyone carries the sin, which people would agree on, but it goes further to say that the condition we're in is to the point that it would say, everyone is lost. Everyone is lost. Doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, free or slave, whatever, 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 righteous or unrighteous in, in the world's eyes, everyone is lost. And in multiple places throughout Scripture, it reaffirms this fact. It goes on to say, if God was to hold all of our sins against us and to you know, demand accountability for each and every one of our sins, everyone would be hopelessly lost. Like no one would be able to stand up and be declared righteous. Isaiah 53 verse 6 speaks of this truth and speaks of it within the context of what God came to do about it as well. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has, lay, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
So the, the passage begins to explain that what are we? Sheep, lost sheep. Every single one of us is gone. Every single one of us, can you imagine a shepherd walks out and every single sheep is missing or stuck, you know, stuck on a rock or drowning in the water. Like every sheep has gone astray. All of them are in trouble. They're all screwed. And that's the situation that we, we are all in. We're all equally lost. And we intellectually resist this fact because we misunderstand sin. When we hear something like that, we think, well, surely that can't be the case. I'm a good person. I know good people. I know, you know, my, you know, my friends, my relatives. They're not bad people. They're not lost people. They're fine. They're upstanding citizens. They're, they're decent human beings. They do their best. And the reason we come to that conclusion is because we don't understand the Bible's definition of sin. When the Bible speaks about sin, now, what we think of is like sin is doing bad things, things like stealing, things like murder, things like adultery. Those are bad things, and that's sin. And if I don't do those things, then I'm not in trouble. Those are bad things, but they're actually conditions of, they're sort of the symptoms of the condition that we carry. The definition of sin is far greater than that. The word sin is actually just the word to miss, to fail. And what it, the Bible speaks of as the definition of sin is that sin means a failure to fulfill your goal. The goal that you have before you, you fail to do it. And so it encapsulates things that we do, and we fail by doing certain things, but then it also has things that we fail to do, things that we don't do are counted as sin as well. The things that we missed, the things that we neglected is sin as well. And here's where we start to get uncomfortable. The greatest problem that we face, this is a kind of a riff on a Tozer quote, the greatest problem that anybody faces is God. The fact that he exists, what he is like, and what we as morally responsible human beings must do about him. That is the greatest problem that we all face greater than all the other problems combined in our life. If God exists, we owe him everything. Everything goes to him. If he doesn't exist, life is totally meaningless. If he does exist, we owe him everything. Any thought outside of those two options is a form of self-deceit. It's a form of lying to ourselves, living a deception. We owe him everything. And so if that's the case, what, what's the goal of life? The goal is to give all of our allegiance to him, to live our life totally in submission to him. Who, how are you doing on that? How's anybody doing on that? Hopeless. We're hopeless. We don't live in deference to God. Scripture speaks about the whole summation of the law comes down to two things. Love God, love other people. You look at the Ten Commandments, they're basically mirrors of those two ideas. First five dealing with how do you love God, second five dealing with how do you love other people. And they're deeply connected to one another too. If, you f if a failure to love people is, is a failure to love God as well. And a failure to love God will result in a failure to love people as a result too. We have 
a goal set before us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Anything short of that is sin. Not living up to that standard is sin. The Ten Commandments point to the responsibility we have towards each other. And if you read it rightly, you'll see we are failing on all counts. We are absolutely failing on all counts, not only because of the fact that, you know, uh, you know, something like a theft, theft isn't simply stealing from something, it's also not giving what you owe to them. And what do you owe to them if you love them? You, you should sacrifice on their behalf. And if you're not, you can't claim that you didn't steal from them. You didn't live up to your goal. You didn't live up to your responsibility before them. It's a form of theft. You know, when you read the Ten Commandments on the surface, you might think, well, I got like eight out of ten of them going. You know, maybe two of them I'm not doing so good, but the rest I'm pretty, pretty set. But when you re- if you read the chapter this week, you'd see how John Stott breaks it down. How No, actually on every single point, we are all failing all of them. It's true. He's in line with what the, the Bible teaches about this stuff. God isn't looking at the surface of these things. God looks deeply. I mean, the first and last commandment alone point to the condition of the heart. You can't simply check the list and say, well, I'm not murdering someone, so, so that's enough. What about the bitterness that you carry within you? What about the rage and the, and the grudges you hold and the way you lash out against people? What Jesus will point to is that, you know, a sinful action is simply symptomatic of this whole track of sinfulness that you've allowed to foment in your heart. We all carry within us the same seeds of sinfulness. The difference between us is that in some cases they've been allowed to germinate and, and bear fruit, and in other cases we haven't yet done that. But all a murder is, is an anger that's been allowed to grow in the right soil. All an adultery is, is a lust that's been allowed to grow in the right soil. Which means that all of us carry within us the same propensity towards sin, the same propensity towards brokenness. And if we had just a little bit of different conditions in our life, and a little bit of different you know, sinful opportunities to be able to act upon, we would be right there in the same place that anyone else in the world is because all of us deep inside carry this inner brokenness. And your anger is not okay. Because your anger is actually, if you allow it to keep going, just leading you towards lashing out, attacking, and eventually murdering. If you allow that to fester and fester and fester, it's kind of like, um, what's that, the Joker in Batman, which one of them, I don't know which one, but he says, um, he says, uh, society, the whole of society is just one bad day from being just like me. Maybe one of you uh, comic book people can tell me which one. But it's it's kind of right. All of us, in a sense, are one bad day away from committing the worst of things. You know, people talk about it all the time when it's, you know, in periods of war or in just the ongoing neglect of, of allowing to see the sinfulness rise up in your own heart. People see their friends and family members do the worst, worst things. They see themselves doing the worst, worst thing. And then if they come to their senses, by and large, they'll all say exactly the same thing afterwards. I never knew I was capable of that. I never thought I could do that. The reason you didn't think you were capable of it is because you didn't take what Jesus is saying seriously enough. You didn't see the danger that you were in. So when you begin to look at the true condition that we're in, 
the danger that we're all in, the propensity towards sin that we all carry, now we begin to see how truly lost we are. Most people will naturally judge themselves to be just kind of average. You know, morally speaking, I'm average or slightly above average. Most people will say that. Now, the problem with it is if everyone's saying they're average, well, most of them are lying because that's not how averages work. But more than that, we'll see that the way that we judge ourselves would be from the perspective of how we see ourselves in light of the people around us. And that's not God's perspective. That's not what God cares about. We should be looking at God. What do you think about me? Not what do these people think about me and the best I can gauge myself in relationship to them. But God, how do you see me right now? And when we start to ask that question, we actually begin to see that we are far, far worse than we ever feared. Our deepest fear, it's worse. It's worse than that. Don't be dismayed. This is just the beginning of the story. When you start to realize this, this is, this is actually how you step into the, the real story. This is the first step or the first page opening up and seeing reality for what it really is, seeing how, what life is for what it truly is. Beforehand, we were just we were walking around with our eyes closed. Now we enter into the true story. George Whitfield says that, What's distinctive about Christians is not only do they repent, which means turn away from their sins, they actually also turn away from their own righteousness. He says they turn away from the things that they've used to call themselves good because they see them as what they are, which is idols. They're things that we hold on to for comfort. They're things that we hold on to for identity. They're the things we hold on to, to to feel good about ourselves, to give us a sense of, uh, of uh, self-pleasure. That's an idol. He says self-righteousness is the last idol be, to be plucked from our hearts. The last idol because it continually crops up again and again and again. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, there's probably still a hint of self-righteousness in you as well. But if you haven't embraced this truth, you haven't really entered the story yet. If you haven't embraced the fact that you need to give up all the reasons you use to call yourself good, then this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard to understand Christianity. It's going to be hard to understand what Jesus is offering. Do you realize this? I, I had this thought the other day, and it really kind of freaked me out. Do you realize that almost, almost everybody in the world thinks that they're the good guy? Like You just think about the election right now, right? Everyone thinks they made the right decision on who they voted for. Everyone. And then it goes even deeper than that. Everyone in the world, practically everyone in the world, thinks that they are the good guy, despite the vast chasms of differences we have in, in situations and events and actions and everything else. That's the situation we're in. And we, we, we maintain this illusion by a constant stream of pride or willful ignorance of lies of a victim mentality, on and on and on it goes. You know what Isaiah 64, 6 says? It says, our righteous acts are like dirty rags before God. You know what? It actually doesn't say that. It would say, it does say that in your English Bible, but only because none of the translations seem to be brave enough to say what it actually says. Because the word dirty rags 
actually is menstrual cloths. Our righteous acts are like menstrual cloths before God, used the tampon. I mean, and I'm not trying to be gross. I'm trying to be accurate here. This is what the Bible is speaking of. Let's lighten it a bit. So let's say my daughter comes to me. My daughter's four and a half, almost five. And she comes to me and she says, Daddy, can I have a dollar? Sure, give her a dollar. She goes off with her mom, comes back with a little gift for me, a little chocolate or something like that. She goes, here you go, Daddy, I bought you a gift. I'd be so touched. It'd be so amazing. So well, that's lovely. But then imagine she turns around and says, because I agree to give you this, you must agree to give me the life I want. You must agree to help me to succeed at whatever I want to do and always approve of me and let me do my own thing and still take care of me forever because I gave you this. I'd be like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not how this works. That's not how this works. I mean, it's perfectly fine to give me that as a gift. It's sweet, it's lovely as a gift. But if, if you say that I'm going to give you something so that you'll give me this thing in return, like, like somehow you earned this from me, that somehow this, this makes it right for me to give you these things. No, that's not how this works. And yet so often that's what we think about with our goodness. God, I'm going to live a good life and then you must bless me. You've got to give me the life I want, and you must make sure that you, and, you know, accept me into heaven. That's not how this works. Number one, you could never pay him back for what he's done. You could never earn anything from him. But number two, he gives you his love as a gift. He's a father. He gives you his acceptance as a gift. You accept what comes from his hand with trust and faith because it comes from a God who loves. We don't, he doesn't owe us anything. We can't buy his affection. We can't buy his approval. Not with our, our dirty rags of righteousness. And yet we try to do that with God all the time. We rest our safety. We rest our trust. We rest our expectations of how life will go on our own righteous record. And that's what you do with an idol. You look to an idol to say, this is what makes me secure. This is what makes me worthy. You know, I'm going to do what I can for this so that I get something in return. And that's what we're doing with our righteous record. And if we do that, we're doomed to do what Jonah speaks of in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, those who cling to their worthless idols forfeit the grace of God. Our clinging to our self-righteousness will cause us to forfeit the love and grace of God. Because it keeps us from his love. It keeps us away from accepting the gift that he has come to give us. It keeps us from actually rescuing us from the, the power that sin has over us. And not only does the self-righteousness keep us from God's love, but it's also the reason behind so many of the problems in our life. Self-righteousness leads to things like anger and bitterness. You know, we have this huge problem in society today, not just today, probably for all of human history, of tribalism, in-group, out-group. You know, we, we are the ones who are right. You are the ones who are wrong. We will oppress and push back against you. You're the problem with society. In-group, out-group mentality. What's it built upon? Self-righteousness. And anger that comes out of it. And judgment that comes out of it. And bitterness that comes out of it. The second thing that it can have, that can, the cause of our anxiety 
and our insecurity. Why? Because, because self-righteousness is what I have. If I'm not living up to my own standard, I become insecure. I become anxious. I need to prove myself. And when I'm not, I'm covered in shame. I'm covered in disgrace. And so it leads to things like isolationism, cutting ourselves off, putting on those masks where we don't show people who we really are. The beautiful way that we use social media to curate our lives and to show the best part of ourselves you know, even our vulnerability that we show in social media is just a curated vulnerability. Oh, how brave you are for sharing that. That's the kind of things that we do. We share what we're comfortable sharing with, but we don't let people in. Even today, the young people, like they'll text me and I'll call them and they're like, why are you calling me? <laughs> they, they, they don't want a call, they want a text. Why? Because text, I can, you know, it's a mediated form of communication. I can, I, can, I can choose who I want to be, letter by letter. I can answer in my own time and when I feel like it. It's a form of cutting ourselves off, mediating communication, mediating relationships through something else, through a filter of some kind. It, it's happening all around us. And when you start to see that, when you start to see tribalism, when you start to see isolationism, you begin to see it everywhere, everywhere. And it's all built upon this self-righteousness. But when you begin to understand grace, it begins to change everything. You know, when you read the Bible, what you will discover is that there are a lot of people in the Bible who come off really badly, like Jonah. I mean, he comes off like a hot mess. He's terrible. <laughs> but do you know who wrote the book of Jonah? Jonah. See, people who understand grace are able to sh share the worst stories about themselves because they see grace as a miracle. They see the hope behind it all. They see, they see the righteousness that comes from God. I mean, look at the New Testament. Look at how bad the disciples come off again and again and again. I mean, they come off as these bumbling fools. Who wrote the Gospels? <laughs> they did. They wrote them. They're not afraid to share these things because they, they get grace. They understand it. They don't need to mediate relationships. They don't need to protect themselves. And they don't need to, to prove anything to any of us. Here's one of the ways you can tell if self-righteousness is still a problem for you. Are you useful to broken people? Are you useful to lost people? When hopeless people encounter you, are you able to offer them hope? When people come into my office and they describe some of the mess that they've put themselves in in their life, you know, addicts who have been addicts for decades or, you know, prostitutes or, or people who have screwed up their life so, so badly, I'll admit there are times when I literally don't know what to say. I don't know what to offer them. And I think that's because I'm still learning how much of a miracle it is that God saved me. How much of a miracle it is that he chose me and how much of, the, of all the work that he's done in my life is totally, totally by his grace. And if I understood that more, I'd be able to turn to them and say, you, know, you have such an abundant reason to be hopeful. Don't you know that God loves the hard cases just like you? Don't you know that Jesus came to the world to save people just like you? He expresses it. He says, I came for the sick, not for those who are healthy. I came for you. In some ways, he loves you more because of the, because of the mess that you're in. 
I mean, that's the hope that the Bible presents to us, and it's the hope that my self-righteousness shields me from because I, I, I can't offer them something because I just think, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what God can do for you because you've messed up your life so bad. Or I look down on them in judgment and I think, how could you do that? And I see it inside myself. But the good news is, when we begin to see our self-righteousness and start to see the problem that it forms within us, start to see the way that it alienates us from God, to start to see how lost we are as a result of our sin, and with our sin, our self-righteousness and our inability to see it, when we begin to open our eyes to it, remember, this is just the first step into the story. We're actually beginning to see for the first time what's really going on, and therefore we are in a position where we have, we have more hope than ever before. Why don't we pray together? God, I, there's so much left to say. May you fill in the gaps, Lord. May you help people to really understand what you're offering and what you're saying. Words are not enough. Prayers are not enough, Lord. Please, Holy Spirit, may you penetrate all our hearts. Help us to let go of our goodness, to trust in your grace instead. Help us not to forfeit your grace and your love by holding on to our worthless idols. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can find us on the website peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about where and when we meet, as well as a catalog of past sermons and other resources. Hope to see you soon.